got to know when to start and when to finish, right? <laughs> you know, I was just sitting here sort of thinking about various things, and, and uh, I noticed everyone that was stood up here had a tie on. And so I apologize for not having a tie on. But in 1967, I was in a church in Indonesia. It had about 1,000 people in it. And my wife's father and me were sitting on the platform. We were the speakers. And we were the only ones in the whole congregation that had a tie on. And the Indonesian preacher who started off and introduced us, before he introduced us, he went on about ties being a symbol of pride. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) true story. And we looked at each other and said, I think we'll just tear them off, throw them down and said, we have now the victory. <laughs> but we didn't. We were nicer than that. But I, I, I haven't thought about that for years. But uh, I, There's one seat down here if you're brave enough to sit here, by the way. Um, and there's one over here. The last time I was in this room, we were conducting a wedding. And uh, talking about things going wrong, the musician thought the wedding was in the afternoon. The wedding was actually in the morning. Everyone was here. And talking about the facilities people, we were waiting for this guy to come because he called on. Oh, I, was, I said, well, please shower at least before you come. And, and so one of the maintenance guys from the church came in and he played the piano for about 15, 20 minutes while we waited for the main guy to come. Now, you know, talk about adaptability. <laughs> and the bride was just absolutely fine. She got married anyway. <laughs> I, my wife's birthday was the other day. You know, I guess I'm on early, so I can talk for a long time, right? Um, but I, I went down to this cake store called Panini's. You ever, anyone ever been there? The most expensive cakes in the world. But they're good. And there was a couple sitting on the side around a round table. There was, looked like a prospective bride and groom and the parents and a wedding planner, you know, the cake. And they looked totally confused and looking through all this stuff. And I was waiting to pick up the cake. And I just went up to them and said, let me tell you something. I've conducted probably a couple of hundred weddings in Dallas in the last 20 or 30 years. And I said, it always gets eaten. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, don't don't worry about it. Um, And I, I like being here with Stan. I don't know Stan very well, but I do remember one thing in his speaking here at the church one Sunday morning and he stood up there he says I'm going to talk about the tulip principle today and I thought he was referring to you know flowers no no I didn't I knew what that was and then he said I believe in most of it and then went on preaching and I thought there's a guy with a good sense of humor <laughs> to say that in uh, in this environment well that's that's worthwhile so Again, I, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of experimentation today, apparently, including with me, so I apologize for that. Um, anyway, I want to read something to you from this book called Guardian Eagle. This is written by a guy who just had his 100th birthday. We were there, and uh, we know him well, and he was a pilot in the Vietnam War, 
spent six and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton concurrent with John McCain. And he just written this book. I had the privilege of proofreading it before he published it. Uh, he gave everyone uh, a copy of the book. And it was just a real interesting evening. And he, he cooked for 100 people that night himself. So, and it was, was it? No, 80. Did I say 90? No, 100 people. You know, now you know the troubles I have in life. <laughs> but anyway, he started off this chapter, which is entitled Eject, and he said, what's the difference between God and fighter pilots? Well, the answer is God doesn't think he's a fighter pilot. <laughs> All right, we get it. That's good, right? And then he says, from the USAF manual, he said, it's generally inadvisable to eject directly over the area you just bombed, <laughs> which, is what, which is what he did. So that here's what he said. It all happened so fast, so unexpectedly. It seemed we were on another routine mission when all of a sudden there was an explosion behind and under the aircraft and faster than I can tell you both, engine lights started flashing and the entire warning paddle lit up like a Christmas tree. We're hit, eject, I yelled to Mike Lane, my backseat co-pilot. Training kicked in immediately. There was no time to waste. The plane was already out of control and beginning to fishtail. In vain, I moved the stick around, instantly realized I had no stick authority, no more control of the airplane at all. That was it. The plane was going down. Mike didn't respond, so I pulled my handle and was ejected out of the F-4 Phantom like a cork out of a champagne bottle. No one knows what's that like. <laughs> Getting shot down is just the most dramatic change of state that you can imagine. One minute you're a hot shot fighter pilot, master of the universe, almost above God apparently, and seconds later you're like a silk stringed sky puppet hanging helplessly from a parachute. It's a sudden and shocking transition. And then he says one other thing, our lives would never be the same. In the blink of an eye, I went from favored son of the USAF to years in cruel and unforgiving primitive prisons. Like Job of the Bible, I would lose everything, freedom, family, friends, and possessions. In such circumstances, you have nothing left but faith in God, whether you sense it, think about it, acknowledge it, or not. A biblical analogy can be drawn here from Joseph of the Bible. He was stripped of his special apparel, tossed into a pit, taken away to far place and imprisoned like Joseph, Ken would eventually come to an amazing redemption as well. But at this point, redemption would have been the last thing on his mind. That was a long time ago. He broke his back, actually, in the crash when he landed. And he said when he acknowledged to his captors, captors that he had a broken back, he said that's the point where they hit him and beat him. And after that, he said, we never let them know where we suffered. Now, the other thing that was nice about that evening, we had this uh, Vietnamese pilot and his wife come up and talking to us. They kind of figured we had a funny accent too. And so they said to me, and he was, you know, in the South Vietnamese Air Force, this pilot, and he came up to us and said, thank you for letting us come to your country. 
he immigrated here after the end of the Vietnam War, and I said to him, well, you and me both, because <laughs> we're both immigrants. And uh, I, I came here with my wife uh, 35 years ago, although we were here for a while in 1966, before LBJ. Who can remember that? <laughs> And I can, I, I could go on forever, and I probably will, but uh, <laughs> I had to bring a calendar so I know tomorrow I have to stop. But I can remember coming from South Oak Cliff, where my wife's brother lived, and we were staying with him, and we went to preach in a church in Little Elm. <laughs> and it was literally like driving to Oklahoma, as I recall. <laughs> and it had a, it was about, you know, not much bigger than this room, actually, and they had a water cooler in it, which was blowing right at you and an outside toilet. Not bad for church back then, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we, we like Dallas. I came here to live. We came here to live in 1980. If anyone lived in here in 1980, you know that was the year that we had like 60 days or something, 100 degrees and above. And it was the end of the summer. We had come from green, clean New Zealand. <laughs> Who's been to New Zealand, by the way? Good, good. People say to us all the time, why are you living here? And anyway, so we, it was the end of summer, about August, and we were coming in from the airport, and I looked at this place and I thought, oh my God, my goodness, what a God-forsaken place this is. The grass was brown, it was flat, there was no mountains, there was no beach, there was nothing. And then some Texan told me, he said, that's why we build airports. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, but we've been here, you know, close to 30, just uh, almost 35 years now, and we really, really like it, primarily because the people in Texas and Dallas are the best in the world. Come on, you can do, <laughs> you can, you can do better than that. <laughs> Okay, so you didn't come to hear stories, right? But I've got a couple more for you. Uh, someone said to me, well, you should tell them a little bit about yourself, and I don't like doing that too much, but just a couple of stories about us that relate to what I want to talk to you about today. It was in, I think, 1974, 1975, and we were pastoring the church in Wellington, New Zealand, and early in the morning, we got a phone call from Indonesia, which was very, very unusual to get international phone calls back then. And the call was from Valme's mother saying that her father had been killed in a car crash that day on his way to preach in a village church in Indonesia where and he had been a missionary there since 1947, and this was about 1974. It was a shocking call. You know, we were there, we were young, we had two kids, we had Balme's sister living with us at the time. And the reason I mention that is because in the twinkle of an eye, in a very quick moment, everything changed. Everything changed. As it turned out, a couple of months, about a month, a few weeks after that, we went over there for a, about two months to help her mother through the transition 
and uh, she stayed on. They had a Bible college there, which has now trained about 5,000 pastors in Indonesia and churches all over the country. But it was one of those moments where you, you, you never forget it. Another time, this has happened just two months before my wife and I got married, we got a call, and my parents got a call from their son-in-law, my brother-in-law, to say that my sister had passed away in Papua New Guinea. She was, about, uh, she was full-term pregnancy in the highlands in Papua New Guinea doing missionary work, and uh, the baby came early. They couldn't get out because of the uh, circumstances surrounding how high they were, the weather, and the only way they could get out was by Missionary Aviation Fellowship uh, planes. And uh, she delivered a perfectly normal child, and then she herself passed away right there. Her husband wasn't even there. Interesting story going on from that. Uh, about close to 50 years later, I met in Dallas here the pilot who tried to get in and rescue her. And he said it was the hardest decision he ever made because he had to think of five or six people that were put at risk flying at night in storms, 7,000 feet, no navigation lights, you know, the small Cessna planes, and he just couldn't get in there. They did go looking for the husband because he was out somewhere on a motorcycle trek going to a different mission station. They actually found him, tied a message around a rock and threw it out. And they saw him pick it up, and they said he, when he looked at it, he just, you could see the, the faraway look on his face. That was their second child, everything changed, just in that quick moment. Um, we were living in California with an international mission organization, and uh, we decided that the Lord had led us to go back to New Zealand to start a church in Wellington, which was our hometown. So just like, you know, a crazy guy I am most of the time, my wife was, Valmy was like five or six months pregnant at the time. We went from California way up to as far as Edmonton, uh, Canada, back down to Dallas, across to Cal California by plane through Hong Kong to New Zealand arrived in New Zealand, took an eight-hour train trip down to Wellington, and that night, my wife went into premature labor uh, seven months. And next day, lost the baby. And it was, uh, I still get, you know, you get past these things, but you don't get over them. The point about it was that here we were, feeling that we were doing what the Lord wanted us to do, and this happened. And all of a sudden, everything changed. About 10 or 12 years ago, I was riding my motorcycle, which you shouldn't do, by the way. <laughs> any, any orthopedic surgeons here today? <laughs> we, we kind of keep you in business. But I'd done about 100,000 miles of motorcycles all over, up to Canada and Vancouver, and we were out in, uh, in uh, the Davis Mountains in, in uh, West Texas. And I decided to miss a corner. And at 70 miles an hour, went through a barbed wire fence. And uh, 
broke the post in half. And I was lying there thinking, oh my goodness, this is not good. <laughs> and the friends that I was with, they tried to get on their cell phones. There was no cell phone coverage. So they had to ride off. It was about two hours, I think, before the ambulance came. And they put me in the ambulance, took me down to Fort Davis. And there was a little clinic there. Put me on a stretcher. He took me in on the stretcher. And then the doctor who had great bedside manner, he said, lie still, we're going to give you the Christopher Reeve x-ray. Remember Superman? And so they did this x-ray right, you know, right, right from the top. And um, they said, you're okay. So they put me back in an ambulance, sent me to Odessa. Five-hour trip. I wanted to go by helicopter, but they wouldn't do that. <laughs> but, uh, but after that, I was in a wheelchair for four months, three months. Couldn't walk. I'd broken my shoulder, my foot, and my leg and knocked all my teeth out in the front. Now, our son's a dentist, so you see. You know, <laughs> that's the first thing I had done, by the way. And uh, he put me under whatever he did and then recorded me singing country and western songs <laughs> while he was, and I told him if he lets that out, I'm going to sue him. Um, I guess you can do that, right? <laughs> but these are some of the things that happen in life. And we look at ourselves and feel like we've never had much happen to us. But if you look back on your life, you know things do happen, even though you get past them and you move on in life, yet all of us have had things, if we think about it, that have happened to us, that have changed things dramatically, just like that. No forewarning, no thought, no premeditation, it just happens. And it's not the easiest thing to deal with. The one other thing I'll mention to you, seeing that they mentioned I was you know, in business for 30 years and still am. Uh, I was uh, CFO of a public company. We had grown from zero to five people when I joined to 400 a few years later. Uh, we had done a public offering, uh, both an initial public offering and a secondary offering, and our stock was soaring, you know, up and down, up, up, mostly up. And um, they came to me at a time when the quarter wasn't going so well and didn't have enough sales to what they call meet the street expectations. You know that term? You know, you've got to make sure that you meet the analyst's expectations so that your stock doesn't drop when something happens. And we didn't have enough. So they conjured up a good idea, said, let's uh, ship some stuff to a warehouse and get it back three months from now and book it as a sale now. Well, this is highly illegal, if you understand what I mean. And I said, no. And they said, well, you're out of here. And so one day I was, you know, I was going to use the word high-flying CFO, <laughs> which we were, but the next day I was unemployed. Now, just to tell you about the seriousness of that, seriousness of that I actually know five people that have gone to jail sometimes for five, six, seven years for doing similar things. So it's not something you mess around with. But all of a sudden, my world was changed from CFO of a public company to nothing. 
I remember I'd never talked to lawyers before except in the business environment. I talked to a friend of mine, he said, what shall I do? And he said to me, he said, well, you need to talk to a lawyer. So I said, do you know anyone? He said, yeah, go and see this guy down at Fountain Square down there in downtown near the old um, railway station. And I went in there and told him my story. He said, I'll take your case. He said, I'll put an ax right through the middle of their head and you'll be rich for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I thought, hmm. <laughs> and I walked, went and talked to someone else <laughs> who was calmer. And he said to me this, he said, how long do you want to deal with this? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if you go the route that other guy's talking about, it'll be six to seven years of your life and you don't know what's going to happen at the end, and you'll be living with us the whole time. So I said to him, I like your approach better. <laughs> and we went a different route and got things worked out. But the point of the matter is that anything can change. Anything can change. Now, if we took the time, and we won't read the, all the scriptures this morning, but in, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, in the Acts, I should say, uh, the reading we had was from essentially the story of Paul and Silas being in jail, right? And the first part of it was just the background. And then we come to verse 25 where it says, well, let's go to um, let's, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jail was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's what they did to him. Now, if you'll pardon me, one other little story, and this is true too. All my stories are true. They're elaborated, but, um, but when we went to Indonesia, we had to learn the language, right? Because no one spoke English. If they spoke anything at all, it was Dutch, because they'd been colonized by the Dutch for 300 years. So some of them would speak Dutch. So we had to learn English. And I thought, I'm going to learn this as quick as I possibly can. I was 23 years old. Huh? You know Indonesia? No. No. Oh, I had. Thank you. You're replacing my wife here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we, we, we hired a private tutor. He came to our house every day. And after three months of being there, six months and having three months of class, I decided that I knew the language well enough to preach. Now, let me just take a little drink of water here. Now, I have no idea what I preached about, <laughs> but I do know that it included Paul and Silas being thrown into jail. So I was preaching away about this for some reason, and everyone started to laugh. They just, the whole congregation started to laugh. Well, I had misconstructed a phrase in Indonesian. Uh, a small room, I'm talking about a small room, which is kachil and room is kama. Now, I said they've been thrown into the kama kachil, the small room, and everyone started to laugh. Well, I found out later 
that what I'd said was they'd been thrown into the toilet. <laughs> and I just, instead of saying the room that small, I said the small room, which is their word for toilet. Now, I made hay out of that because every time I wanted someone to laugh over there, <laughs> I used that, you know. But, and, but I was, you know, they understood at least that I was wrong. <laughs> but here, here they were, thrown in there. Now, what I wanted to talk to you about was the top of the, the outline was called Songs in the Night. Now, there's day and there's night, right? And we all have days and we all have nights. I mentioned a few of the nights that have happened to us. We're not talking about the physical day or the physical night. We're talking about life's experiences. And what I want to move on to is this. This happened to us in New Zealand when I was pastoring a church. We were in a meeting, we had a guest speaker, and all of a sudden the guest speaker stopped what he was saying, and he looked at my wife, and he said, you will have a song in the night. And I thought to myself, snoring's bad enough, but singing at night, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, think, what, what is this? We didn't understand what it meant. I was imagining my wife waking up at three o'clock in the morning and singing. But it took us about six months till something happened in our own life, which I haven't mentioned and I won't go into it, but it was one of those night experiences where it's a very, very difficult time. And as a result of it, this principle, scripture, teaching came to us and particularly to my wife. And for about a month after this happened to us, she almost never left the house, not as a recluse. But what she did while she was home was listen to and sing songs to the Lord, praises to God, and read the scriptures. And you know what it did? It healed her particularly from any hurt, any distress, any lasting impact from what had happened to us going forward. A few months after that, we left that town and went on a one-year trip around the world, preaching through Africa, England, and America, and it was like this thing had never, ever affected us. And to this day, my wife, and I say this, she's sitting right here, has never gotten upset to the point of distraction with anything that's ever gone on in our life because she knows the secret to dealing with the night experiences. And those night experiences related to what we go on to say in these, if you're looking at the notes here, where it talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart unto the Lord. And in Colossians, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Now, 
I think we all like to sing, right? And we should, because it's the injunction of the scripture to us at times particularly when we're going through difficulty. If you go on to Job, it says, But no one says, Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Who gives us this song? It's God. He wants to give us this song because it's the song that helps us through the tough times and brings us out on the other side with victory in our heart and no bitterness, unforgiveness, hurts that last and affect us going forward. Now, I was doing some research on this, particularly in relation to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What is a psalm? Well, what it talks about here particularly is it's a song of praise on an instrument. So it has the idea of musical instruments. Secondly, of course, we know what a hymn is, and we do know what a spiritual song is, one which the Lord really quickens in your heart, a song that just you revert to almost every time something happens. You know a song to sing that will get you through. In researching this, I looked about, up about bagpipes. Any Scots here? <laughs> no Scotch, just Scots. <laughs> I heard the other day from an Episcopalian preacher, minister, he said to me, he said, you know, we're four or five, no, we're three or four Episcopalians are gathered together, there's always a fifth. <laughs> I want to see who's laughing. <laughs> That's a pretty good one, isn't it? <laughs> then we won't talk about Baptists, though. But, um, where were we? <laughs> I've forgotten. Bagpipes. You know the bagpipes used to be considered a weapon of war? And, and just abbreviating this, there was a bagpipe player on the beaches of Normandy in the D-Day invasion. We were there a couple of years ago and most amazing place you could ever go to. Just so sobering and so thought-provoking. But after the war was over, they asked the German snipers, why didn't you shoot that guy? Because he survived. And they said, we didn't worry about him. We thought he was crazy. <laughs> Which I'm sure he, he, he probably was. <laughs> um, I like to be Scottish because my father was from Scotland. My mother was from England and she kind of avoided that. She, you know, it's not a problem, I guess. But uh, we were in Stirling Castle in Scotland one time doing a tour. And at the end of the tour... They asked, do you have any questions, anyone? And I said, yes, I have one. And he said, what's your question? I said, when will the last battle be? Referring to Scotland and England always fighting. And he looked at me and said, welcome home, laddie, welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, I don't know, my Balme says to me, he said, you shouldn't talk about your mother like that. <laughs> and, uh, the English are a self-made nation who worship their creator thus leaving the Almighty of a terrible responsibility. Um, that's what I always say about the English. <laughs> okay. I, I, you, you know, 
it's unusual. It's the first Sunday, right? Um, <laughs> let's just wrap it up by saying a couple of things. God is the one who gives you a song in the night. So who is the author of the song that you have? It's from the Lord. He wants to give you, each of us, a song in the night. Because if I took the time, and you could, you've probably been thinking about it already, the things that you have gone through, everyone that I've ever met has gone through something, many things. But there's a way through these things that God wants to help us with, and one of those things is giving us a song in the nighttime. When does he give us the song? Well, specifically here it talks about it's in the night seasons. It's in the night seasons. And for instance, the people that we've known, including my wife's mother, who was widowed at 52 years old, suddenly, like I mentioned before, she said the hardest time for her after that was in the evenings. The evenings are tough. But God gives us a song at that time. So he's the one that gives it to us. What is the subject of the song? Well, first of all, it's what he's done for us in the past. Did God ever do anything for you? He did, right? Remember it in the tough times. Not as a point to go back to, but as a point of faith to go forward. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed us yet. We also know that we have the assurance that we'll never be consumed by the circumstances that we're surrounded by. Amen. We'll never be consumed. I look at Stan here, Dr. Toussaint. I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, suffering what he's suffered through. And here he is with a smile on his face. And I, I guarantee you they're singing at home. And lastly, it shows true faith in God. What is the difference between us and unbelievers? We have trust in Christ that he'll carry us through. And if we can't come through the tough times in life, our testimony is disabled by that. People will take notice of us when we show them, in truth, what's happened to us through the tough times. We have a friend of ours, he actually comes from this church. He, he was married for 50 years, nursed his wife for a year until she passed away in the 51st year. He was single for a while. His kids told him to get on Match.com. <laughs> True story. <laughs> the lady who became his wife used to be a motorcycle friend of ours. <laughs> she yelled at me at church a few years ago. said, Don, Don, is that you? And I looked around and I thought, oh, am I in trouble now? <laughs> no, no, I didn't think that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they'd been married for a year or two and she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Now, that was three years ago and she's doing absolutely fantastic now. But I could see talking to him during that early times, 
you couldn't help but think what's going through his mind is not again, all over again. And yet he was facing it with great decorum, trust and faith in God and they've come right through it. So weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So what makes this song so special? Well, if at night, it's an enthusiastic song, and I can tell you what, Paul and Silas were singing pretty good. Don't you think so? And so much so that their singing probably caused the earthquake. <laughs> no, I'm not sure that's not true, but, you know, but, and, and, and what's interesting about it, when the chains fell off, they didn't run away. Because... The jailer and his family were yet to hear the gospel and they preached the gospel to them and they all got saved. Now that's not a bad testimony, is it? And that's what can happen to us when we go through the times that are difficult and show the grace of God in our lives and allow the grace of God to be in our lives. It's a testimony to other people. So, in conclusion, what will this singing do for us? Well, it'll cheer us up. What do you think of that? Singing cheers you up. Even though it's terrible to listen to. <laughs> Secondly, God loves to hear his people sing. Do you think that's true? The, the Bible is full of it. Thirdly, it cheers up our friends. Unless you sing at five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> waking up your neighbours, as the Bible says. And lastly, it's the best argument in the world in favour of our faith. So God gives it to you. He gives it to you for a reason. And if we let that happen to us, as it says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame because he knew what the future was and it was sitting at the right hand of God the Father doing what he's doing now ruling and reigning over our lives and taking care of everything he needs to take care of so I trust this is helpful to you and a blessing to you and I was almost going to sing to finish <laughs> but I thought the song that I, this week I've been singing this song, and you might know it, and if you do, it probably ages you. But it says, Singing I go along life's road, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Singing I go along life's road, for Jesus has lifted my load. That's not bad almost. <laughs> I haven't heard that in years. <laughs> I haven't sung it in years. <laughs> Now, you know, this is the thing about it. It all comes back to you at a time when you need it, right? And so let's join together in prayer, shall we? Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful to you that you are the God that gives us a song in the nighttime experiences of life. Help us know that you are with us. You will never forsake us. You'll be with us all the time, and you are with us all the time. 
and that our trust is in you regardless of what goes on around us. We are unshakable, immovable. Our trust is firmly established in you. Help us, we pray, to be joyful even in the tough times because you know that joy comes from you and you have given it to us to help us through these times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.